Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today's episode concludes our Oscar series, where film industry professionals discuss the nominees and their category of expertise. And we're releasing it just in time for the Academy Awards, which will air this Sunday, March 27th. The last of our technical awards is for cinematography. I'm excited to discuss this year's nominees with our guests. Returning to the show is director of photography and director Patrick Cady, who last joined us to talk about Bosch. Patrick, nice to see you again. Great to see you. And making his below-the-line debut is Sean Peters, whose cinematography can be seen on The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, currently streaming on Apple TV+. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Listeners at home, you can look these guys up on the Internet Movie Database. If you start on the page for Below the Line, you simply click through to the film credits of our guests. The five films nominated for cinematography are Dune, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and West Side Story. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. Gentlemen, let's hop right in. Let's start with Dune Cinematography by Greg Frazier. Well, you know, small budget movie, small <laughs> format film, <laughs> photography, uh, not epic at all. I, I finally got to see it in um, in IMAX uh, about a week and a half ago, and had already seen it with my family and my daughter. I really wanted to see it with me. And, but finally getting to see it in IMAX, um, the thing that I took away that was really interesting was Greg Frazier, the cinematographer, they, they made, they actually built some sets out in the real world. So they had to use sunlight and uh, which means you're telling your director and your director's agreeing, okay, we've got one hour for this shot. I mean, they're not, uh, I come from very low budget features to start. So it wasn't like we have one hour for the scene, but it'd be like, we have one hour for this frame. Um, And you can tell, you can tell that they're doing that kind of thing. And then the thing I noticed seeing at IMAX, which I hadn't noticed before, was the way they were moving my eye in the frame if it was widescreen or if it was IMAX. It would seem like it would go to IMAX without me quite noticing. And then there would be something in an upper right corner or somewhere in the big format square frame that suddenly made me realize I was looking at it in IMAX, you know, I was surrounded. And I just thought that was an interesting, those, those are the things that get me the most excited about being a cinematographer and being a director is that collaboration where you're, you're telling this story and you're moving the audience's eye around the story um, and that they're paying that much attention to the format they're going to present those scenes in is really amazing on top of all the things that are obvious. I only saw it on my television, unfortunately. <laughs> you know? now, did they change the format on the television or they keep it one like 16, nine or scope or. I think it's scope. I, you know, I didn't, I'll be honest with you. I didn't particularly pay attention. I was just sort of immersed in it. You get sucked into the movie. I sucked into it. So I didn't even think about what the aspect ratio was when I was watching it. But um, one of the things that is very difficult with big special effects films is Tommy Gray had a lot of VFX um, more than I've ever done before, but something on this scale, one of the things I've seen that sometimes can go awry is sort of the pre, the sort of the pre-planning of how those VFX are going to interact with, what you guys are doing on the stage, what they're doing on the stage and what they're doing uh, lighting wise. And I just felt like, you know, one of the, they, they were, it was, obviously it was really smart in terms of like the skies were mostly overcast. So they had this like gray sort of dust filled desert sky that really allowed the lighting to, um, you know, the sun, especially to be diffuse in a way that allowed for, for lighting on stage without it, you know, trying to mimic some crazy sun. And people look great in that kind of, if, if you're setting that up as, you know, or, or sun coming to a room and bouncing around everywhere and then suddenly just softly hitting someone the right way, you, you still feel connected. The other thing I thought was really interesting is how many extreme close-ups there were in, in a movie that was initially designed to be seen on such a big format. And it didn't bother me. Sometimes when I, when I see a movie on a big screen and it's all close-ups it feels like maybe the team is from television and they don't understand they don't need to do it or something but in, in dune i felt like it was all story connected and i felt like every shot was pushing the story they're trying to tell you know those that they were telling successfully every shot was pushing that story ahead 
and so when they went to a screaming close-up of someone it had an impact there was a reason for it i think i was reading in america cinematographer that they really were careful about their like lensing their close-ups for the imax yeah the focal lengths that they used and you know they really were making sure that what they were watching on the monitors and stuff for close-ups was in the imax format so that they they wouldn't do exactly what you just said like an extreme close-up that would be crazy on like a right never big screen <laughs> yeah but they still they're still pretty yeah you know there's some really really close stuff and and smart inserts and things but yeah you can tell there's there's just this this level of craft and it's so fun to think of you know that greg then also shot the batman <laughs> which looks like it was shot with lenses that were dropped on the floor you know i love the watch i haven't seen that yet but i looks i really like the look a lot it's i'm sure it's great i mean yeah. Dune is my favorite i think just as, as a spoiler for my favorite for best cinematography i just think i just think it's just on the, the, the mastery level of you know even what the, what you see in the distance what the eye sees in the distance in those big sets yeah how they're making sort of light it almost feels you know obviously it feels like another planet you know but that kind of desert light believable you know still having beautiful keys you know it's, it's, i think it's a masterclass yeah it's phenomenal and then you know some of those things where you know obviously there were sets but it just felt the room just felt the way the light was falling on people and the key lights were falling on people uh it was just so round you know it wasn't hard and one directional it was just really beautiful and soft and uh, you know that's not easy just the technicality of it was overwhelming it was great to watch that's the reason why it's my favorite and they built a lot of things practical the um denis and it, it's funny uh the imax screening i saw denis and greg were there and he talked about having been given a master class by roger um and coming from blade runner to this where they had to construct a lot of things in visual effects and blade runner but roger's very good about stretching the lighting that would be coming from those effects in the scale of what they would be be in and greg said that the um the visual effects supervisor was one of his closest allies because they would start pitching someone would say well we should do this in visual effects and the visual effects supervisor is like no it it won't feel correct you know if i can extend but you should build two here for real and then i can i can extend it and it shows i was thinking about when i watched it i was thinking about um even though the movie wasn't successful i thought what bradford did in solo in terms of how the interaction with the light on the faces and the vfx he's so good with faces bradford young i mean come on <laughs> And it was very similar to me in terms of the execution between the pre-thought of the visual effects world and what they were doing on stage and the quality of light and how things matched up so nicely. Well, it's interesting watching these shows shooting in a volume too now, because that's all new technology for us to play with. And they supply a certain amount, but then if you've got to bring hard light in, you've got to poke it through the volume kind of, and mm -hmm. you know, how do you do that nicely? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can't. There's a lot we can say about Dune, but it's you brought it up, Patrick, and, and made some comparisons to Blade Runner 2049. And that's come up a couple of times as well, where there's some similar visual style. Talk to me a little bit about collaborating on cinematography with a director who appears to have this vision that he's bringing to the entire film. Well, the interesting thing about that, seeing that screening and having him talk afterwards was he talked about how Dune was a book he'd wanted to make into a movie his whole life and the um, composer too. And, and the terror of doing that, you know, he wasn't worried as much about disappointing other people as much as disappointing his 14 year old self. Right. And he also said the person running the Q and Q and a at the uh, screening I saw kind of asked how, how do you decide what your project you're going to next? Cause he's going into these progressively bigger and bigger projects. And he said, he feels like he's learning on every film, the ability to then go to the next, that next film. And so the idea that he's been progressing in this scale um, and now is in the, you know, the stratospheric scale, but it, you can tell that that's the same filmmaker that's made these earlier movies of his, and he's staying connected to the story. And then I think it all becomes about what technique keeps us glued to the story as much as possible. This thing Sean's talking about where you can tell how complete that approach, approach is. So it's an interesting thing. 
your job as a director is to fine tune everyone's focus and answer the same question a hundred times. And so you better like the answer you have, right? And then drive with what's in your budget, you're driving to get those answers. I can't imagine in Dune, there's definitely got to be conversations about, well, what is the budget of making this giant set? How much of it do we need to make? And then how much of it is, you know, there's these behind the scene photos of the this tea, the room where these guys are having tea and then they get, there's like a sneak attack comes in and they built or found, I can't even remember. Do you know, Sean, that, that column room? And then the rest is Greg with these giant pieces of diffusion flung off construction cranes. And you're playing that game all the time. And, and Denis, knowing that that's the thing he has to do to get this level of movie made, I think he's going to keep going in that direction. But it'd be really, I'd be really curious if, if he takes a break from one of these giant epics and makes a tiny movie again. Yeah. Every cinematographer in the world is going to be lining up for that job. And he, he'll be able to pick whichever one he wants. <laughs> I find that, you know, but certain cinematographers, you know, they're, that elite class. I think once they step, step on set, I don't think anyone says anything to them at all. <laughs> I think Greg Price is one of those people who's like, I'm not going to really, yeah, we're going to shoot here for an hour. I don't think he's a line producer or AD arguing about time and money. <laughs> well, they probably talked about it ahead of time and said, look, if we don't get the whole thing in that hour, we'll come back this hour tomorrow. I'm. It's really funny. I For a long time, I wondered how they um, made What's Eating Gilbert Grape look so fantastic. I didn't know Sven Nyquist had like a bag of magic powder he carried around or what the trick was because it's a low budget movie and every frame is beautiful and the quality of light on people's faces is insane and then a production designer I was working with was like I was a PA on that movie and I can tell you the answer I was like okay and he said we went around on the scout and we were all shooting in this we were shooting in this tiny little town and Sven said to the director we can shoot on this side of the street from this time to this time and they just schedule it. So if they didn't get the scene by the end of the day, they would come back the next day and finish it Nice on a tiny budget. How often do you get that? You, you don't, but if you, if you trade in a bunch of your equipment budget for standing in the right place in the right weather and add to your schedule days, you can do it. But who does, I mean, yeah, very few nowadays, I think, I don't know. It's like, there's, there's people are more and more afraid. The budgets are getting, the time to shoot is getting, getting more and more cut. And I do find that, I don't know if it's being, that's regressive, especially in that mid-level sort of 10 to $20 million movie. I think that's almost the trickiest spot. If you're shooting a million dollar movie and you have 24 days, you, you all know what movie you're on. <laughs> and, and yeah. Having shot one recently. And, and, uh, uh, and if the script is really good, I basically shot one of those and it was more money because the cast was really amazing. But, you know, like, okay, we have to schedule every, and we have to plan every single shot because if we stub our toe for 20 minutes, our whole day, like our whole week goes down the drain. Like, and a lot of pressure gets put on you as a cinematographer. It's probably a good time to plug, uh, you hire good assistant directors as well. I think. Oh, amen, brother. <laughs> Listen, we'll talk Bye. about that another time. Oh, see, I, I've been really, really lucky on Bosch. Um, I'm going to shout out to Trey Bachelor, and uh, oh my God, it's it's a godsend. It's someone who's standing next to you and and understands you cannot have uh, you know take your time in the morning and rush around like your head's on fire in the afternoon. You just got to run at it all day long until you're done. Well, I'm going to take us on to the second film on our list. That's Nightmare Alley, cinematography by Dan Lauston. This one I haven't. I have to. I have to sadly admit I have not seen this one on the big screen yet. But it was ridiculously impressive in my little home movie theater. I'm going to admit that I haven't seen any of these on the big screen. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> For me, it's all about the color palette, and that's so interesting because they made a black and white version, which I haven't seen yet. And in some ways, I know with the digital intermediate step where you're sitting in a coloring room, a strong color palette gives them a ton of weapons later to for the black and white. Cause you can be like, Oh, let's make the, let's make it like we're wearing a red filter. Let's make it wearing, wearing a blue filter. If, if those colors are saturated in, in your quote unquote negative, right. If in your raw image or your basic image that the camera caught is really saturated, you can grab those colors and play with them later. And so I don't know if that was, I'm doubting that was the tactic, but I'm guessing that was a, a fun advantage in the process later. 
this is me talking completely out of supposition. I don't, no, I don't it could know be. Answer. It makes sense. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I got to admit, and I've used it, but I'm not always a big fan of digital black and white when I see it, especially on a large scale, big screen. I always feels very digital to me. I guess I'm um, just so used to watching black and white films on that were shot on film, you know? And I think, I just, I think it's okay. I think it's great. I think there was a definite thought when you watch a film that was shot in color, then you see it in black and white, you definitely have more respect of the shape of shadows and form and light and how they interact. You're not distracted by the color in that way. So you definitely see what the, you see the direction, you kind of see what the cinematographer is doing. Just even the densities of uh, different lights and, and, and the def- densities of different sh- uh, shadows. So that's interesting to me, but I'm always a little disappointed when black and white films aren't shot on black and white film. I, I like the commitment. <laughs> I am a huge uh, old film noir fan myself. And yeah. for a long time of screen movies on film in my backyard and it's the only way to fly <laughs> to see those <laughs> even in 16 millimeter, which is where I started. And, and now my very understanding wife has let me have a 35 projector in the back craft shack. And we do these outdoor movies. That's yeah. It's really, really fun. Yeah, I got to get my life together. I have none of these things. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can I can certainly tell you how to get started in 16. It's really easy. The thing I noticed about Nightmare Alley was the way they were shaping people's faces in that kind of noir, hard light way. And when you have a cast like this movie does, you can do that. I mean, everyone's face can take, you know, a pretty hard directional key very, very well. The funny thing was, is I'd watched the original just like two weeks before I this came out and I was able to see this. And uh, the original is also fantastically shot. So I, I really, my eye just went to that kind of hard key lighting style, that, that kind of hard light style. Yeah, it's enough these days. I think it's fun. Yeah, it's great. And, and you know you're telling your actors they have to hit that mark, they rehearse, because if they don't, <laughs> they're not going to look good. <laughs> no, crazy. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Sometimes you can see that, which bothers me a little bit. That you have to hit a mark and you can see sometimes oh them being uncomfortable just doing walk it. right into a key like super hard and and sometimes as a filmmaker you can see it but still i like i like the mastery of that i think it's wonderful one of my very first movies i ever shot was uh one of the actors was a soap actor and he was doing this thing where in rehearsals he would just come to his mark and so and i was lighting kind of a hard key style and and then on the takes he would hold off just shy of his mark until his line and they would say his line and lean in and your eye would go right to him, right? Because as he was speaking, he would light up. And he did it for like a day. I kind of, I think I caught it after like, you know, lunch one day. I was like, oh, wait a minute. What? Did, look at that. And so I went over and said, so how many cameras are you used to working with? And he said about three. I said, so this is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. And he looked at me. He said, what do you mean? I said, you're leaning in when you're saying your lines into your key light. He's like, oh, yeah, I probably am. He didn't even know he was doing it. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was beautiful too. I thought the color palette was amazing. And I liked the, all the hard light. And the mix of lighting. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and I personally don't know if I fully agreed with it all the time, was the camera's always moving. Like the, there's always some motion. Mm-hmm. And I, I every time I feel a rule, it's like the m- movies where there's no cuts and like Birdman drove me a little crazy because there were a couple of times I would have loved a cut to see someone's reaction. And th- this is the much more subtle rule, but it is something that I picked up on before hearing interviews where they said that they had purposely done it. I was it's like, oh, the camera's always moving. There's always a little something. I kind of prefer camera movement to have a narrative, you know, a beginning, middle, and end narrative. But right. Yeah. Yeah. Energetically, how it can work too. That was a nice way to put that, Sean. That the motion to have a narrative every scene should have a narrative right every scene has to have that arc and yeah and so i remember uh coming onto a set that uh paris barkley was directing on and, and i know him from a long time ago and i said hey how's it going he's like oh you know just uh sitting back here watching cameras at uh 200 millimeters just styling back and forth for no reason because <laughs> that was the look of the show he was on <laughs> yeah, yeah that sometimes can be interesting i don't think i was bothered by it in this particular thing because yeah like, i don't I, but i think in general i'm always like why if i'm watching some like big superhero movie i'm like why is that camera dollar why is that why is there a slider on this shot for no reason you know? 
because there's stuff happening. <laughs> it's like a literally a dialogue scene between two people and the camera's always, is there a purpose for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust your audience. And <laughs> certainly in, in Nightmare Alley, it was it was a really subtle thing that I noticed late in the movie that it was happening. It might have been actually about midway through when the main character is going through all the um through the carnival itself. I noticed, oh, there's there's there were cutting out, but we're not cutting out on a shot parking. We're cutting out on it still moving. So it's so I feel that they wanted and they've I've since heard interviews where I guess correctly, but they want you to feel like he is like, oh, this is a world I could succeed in that I find interesting. Next film on our list is The Power of the Dog, cinematography by Ari Wegner. I love this movie. <laughs> I enjoyed My friend of mine was the study camp, the A-cam study camp up on this guy from New Zealand that I worked on once on a series. So I got a chance to sort of sit with him. He's in New York working on another Netflix film. So we had lunch like maybe a month ago or so. And so I had a chance to get a little inside on things. But what I loved about this film, in which I'd like to do more in my work, is sort of, sort of meditative, um, whimsical lighting and cinematography moments that were that were coming in and out of the film, you know? There's this one shot in particular I can remember when the young man is making, he's doing his little artwork thing in the beginning of the film. And it's like, it's beautiful. Obviously it's a beautiful sort of light, like an edge with like the light fill on his skin, it's really nice. But there's something that happens with the light when he puts his hand up in the material and just the moment of sort of whimsy with it. And then there's like a little rainbow projection on his back when they do the reverse. I always like films when you have, you know, these sort of flights of fancy, sort of whimsical dust in the air, uh, in the light sort of meditative moments that I thought were really beautiful. Sort of Jane Campion type thing too, you know, she does a lot of that. Yeah. To me, I feel like it's a, it's a love letter to, and an, and a can, and in addition to Terrence Malick's early movies, mm-hmm. you know, where you feel the real world is a, as a potentially beautiful and potentially harsh and dangerous place, depending on who you are. And that's what the movie is playing with. So it, it's one of those things where the visual storytelling is laying right on top of that, the story of the movie itself. And, and the thing I loved about the movie was, I thought I knew where it was going and then it went somewhere else that was surprising and the, the surprise of the obvious, right. It, it was like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> cause about halfway through, I was like, huh, I really think I know where this is going. And then 10 minutes later, I was very surprised at where, it, where it went and so happy that it went there. Yeah, um, Cody Smith McPhee. I got to direct him in a show called um, uh, Interrogation, and he was fabulous in that show. He he was such a wonderful actor to work with, and then to see him just freaking knock this out of the park as well. I I'm I hope he wins. I I would love for him to get this recognition. He's a real talent. And he was nominated for best supporting. Yeah. Yeah, he's nominated, so I'm excited. I'm super excited for him. And um, yeah, it's he's just a real talent. And I, the thing I wanted to talk a little bit about this is, I don't know if non-cinematographers know how tricky it is to make the interiors work as well as they work in here when they're competing against these shockingly beautiful, huge, wide exteriors. And for those two things to feel all the same piece and the even the direction of the light and the way the sun plays inside to outside. That's a real skill. Even looking inside from inside to outside the window. Bingo. There it is. Really got it. It's beautiful. And it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like, you know, this sort of old school matte kind of thing that it used to do. It feels like, you know, this, you know, probably a lot of ND on the window if there's a window, but, but it's, it's so balanced. You know, I was, I was really impressed by that too. The quality of it all the way around. And those exteriors are always super beautiful. It kind of had that feeling of something that Roger shoots where you're like, oh, he got lucky again. Every, yeah. so, every shot. Every you shot. Know, when- yeah, exactly. You know, like, damn. Yeah, I, didn't, I, don't, yeah, I wish I had that look. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think it is. I think it's craft, crafting those images. Um, what's interesting about any of these movies, but I certainly thought about it 
and Sean mentioned exactly the thing that is the trickiest is that lo- looking inside to the outside and, and that the landscape is such a big part of this movie, the power of the dog. If you're curious, if you're a filmmaker, that's not a cinematographer, just take your phone and try to make a frame that has the exposure of what this has. And you'll understand how much work a cinematographer has to do to make it work. Um, she's doing amazing work in this movie um, to make these frames look the way they look amazing and to be balanced as much as they are. And I'm assuming without the, you know, I think about the budgets of these movies when I'm watching them too. It's when you're judging something for awards, it's always interesting to think about how it was made in addition to what the result was. And you have no idea if this was a small budget where they waited for things to be perfect or a huge budget, or it just, every frame is working. (laughs) Every frame makes sense and helps tell the story. And that's not always easy. And if it seems, if you don't think about it, then they've done their job. Everything's working. I understand it was a, fairly long shooting schedule from my friend. I can't remember exactly how long, but they had some time. Yeah, that makes sense. So they could wait for these clouds. I, I have a frame up here, a still frame of wide of the house. It's just like it's ridiculous. It's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, so it is New Zealand too. So I feel like some of, some of this is like an advantage of just like you're in New Zealand with these clouds. Step you know, one, go to New Zealand. Yeah. I had to go, I had to shoot in Atlanta. yeah not the greatest aesthetic place on the planet exterior aesthetic place on the planet i did a tv movie once in puerto rico and i remember looking at the sun path and you slowly start tilting your head up right and your your head goes up and up and up because everything's you know you've got a magic you don't have a magic hour you have like a magic 10 minutes because the sun is just coming up and then bang it's almost dead overhead the rest of the day because you're so close to the equator well, it's interesting to compare the vistas in Power of the Dog with our next film, and that's The Tragedy of Macbeth, cinematography by Bruno Dubonnel. I have a little bit of a Bruno Dubonnel story. I, before I was a cinematographer, I was in music, music business. And I, I went to film school before I was in music business. Just to, I just left because, you know, whatever life circumstances, <laughs> you know. But so I was a big fan of Bruno Dubonnel from Amelie, obviously, and a very long engagement, all those films. And uh, I had a chance to be on set with him during the filming of Across the Universe, the Julie Taymor film. And I used to manage an artist that was in the film. And so because he was in the film uh, for several days and just, I just, you know, the artist that I was working with, I just left him and just hung around with Bruno. And he allowed me to sort of just hang around with him, you know? And um, just being able to sit and watch his sort of, sort of what he was doing, you know, was, was a, a big spark for me in making, becoming a cinematographer sort of believable for myself. That's amazing. But, and was there, was there some way he thought about light? He would never remember this, by the way. It was so oh. random. He would never remember. <laughs> My first movie, I was the camera intern for Roger Deakins and he gave me advice that literally changed the course of my life into where it is now. He does not remember giving me that advice. <laughs> We've talked about it. Yeah, and I've seen, you know, I saw Bruno one time. I don't think I spoke to him one time. I wasn't next to him. I just was like on the set far away looking at his monitor. Of course he signed my like DVD copy of a very long engagement. <laughs> that was the only interaction we had. So he would never remember. I just was able to be on set. But anyway, this film, um, you know, my feeling about this film, you know, disappointed it wasn't shot on black and white film. That's my first disappointment because I can kind of feel the video in it. But I think there's a masterclass of like using movers, you know, on set. Can you explain to the non-cinematography audience what, what you mean when you say movers? Uh, yeah, a mover is like a theatrical light, I guess, in layman's term. It's like what you'd see on a stage or in a concert where you see sort of a, a light that's casting a beam of light and it's moving around. Uh, in a concert with spotlight on a person and then, or, you know, lights going crazy in the background for a rock and roll concert. Those are movers. Um, you know, these environments, seems like, you know, all those lights that are coming through those tunnels and all those lights that are cutting through are all just like gobos and like cut out, like them shaping movers and making them to the shape of the architecture and working with the production designer to create, you know, cuts for the movers to, to extend those, extend those shadows and those, those, those lights. And I just think 
that is an incredible feat. Yeah, I remember one of the early uses was Maddie used them for uh, Inside Man, right? Because they couldn't rig in the bank, so he, he rigged them up in the ceiling and was able mm-hmm. to. It's really smart. I use movies a lot in Tom Gray. Oh, yeah. Secret. <laughs> yeah, it's smart. I, I know that um, Greg uh, talked about using them on. Uh, his Rogue One, right? Greg shot Rogue One and he used movers there because those directors are changing things all the time. And so he can be sitting next to his his dimmer board operator and changing the lighting to what the shots are changing to as it's all happening. And especially if you're trying to make a stage set believable. I don't think in this case, it was a believability issue. It was more just a really graphic disability to make. There's no way you're going to get a light to, to an actual lamp to cut that you know, to make that, you know, sort of archway cast a hard white light on the floor like they did (laughs) without it being a mover with the shape cut out in the mover. And so I think the graphic nature of building the world just using minimal structure and then then lighting and shadow to create a world, to create this castle is pretty, a pretty amazing feat for me. I also feel like they did such an, he did such an amazing job with Francis's face and, and with Denzel's face, the, the close-ups are really amazing, but also theatrical. And I think that's maybe they seemed a little more matte than might be normal. And I felt like that was actually, a, normally I wouldn't be a fan of that, but it seemed like such a perfect fit in the theatrical sets and the theatrical lighting that, and you can tell they're being beautiful, big, soft, rappy soft things but just positioning it so their their downstage eye is just getting a little something so it's it's still very shaped it's all purposefully crafted and it's okay with showing you that it is and and exploring the, a three-dimensional stage world instead of a you know proscenium arch world i thought that was pretty phenomenal do you remember when you were watching bruno on across the universe um is there something you saw, like did, what got connected in your brain besides the fact that you could actually do it about the way he thought about lighting or framing or? The particular scene that I was watching because they shot that scene over a couple of days was that he had these huge, um, I don't know if they were gem balls, but they were like these huge lanterns. They were huge, you know, soft round sources. And then you'd always have like something soft and close. And then he would have like, something kind of hard in the distance, you know, raking somewhere. So it was always a sort of combination of this soft sort of close thing that was happening on people. And then there was like this hard thing in the back. So that was like a thing I learned right away, you know, from him. I was like, oh, I'll try that. And um, sort of what uh, Darius Kanji does, you know, like in seven and a few places, it, you know, you see these smaller, Bruno's case, they were bigger, but in some smaller, softer sources, that are closer to people and then there's like harder things in the back you know which is a very very cool technique i think that's what i learned from him i got to gaff a uh, music video in the late 90s with darius uh and uh we lit it all with kino tubes and maglite flashlights and it was such a fun way to learn how his brain thought about lighting thought about metering it was a really really fun it was several days what a gift for you Oh my gosh, I, it was a masterclass for me and I was getting paid to do it. It was the craziest thing. Um, yeah, really. And and we talked a lot about the way he was exposing film to be transferred to video. It was a long time ago and we were transferring on Y front Bosch's. And if your negative was actually a little thinner, you had less noise in the transfer. So it was this really precise exposure placement. It wasn't like, you know, overexpose it and, and figure it out later. It was this very precise approach and it was, it's nice. It's always nice to see. And of course, all these movies were seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bruno, man, Bruno's also just like a master, you know, color too. And sort of color temperature. I didn't think I saw much coming from above. Right? And my memory is like, everything was sort of lower. All the sources were sort of lower you know, which makes sense. It's nice to set up parameters. Those, those rules end up feeling like a truth, even if they're not following what would actually happen in a room. If you're doing it all the same, the same for the scene, then it's something about it feels right. Yeah. 
So the film was incredible. The cinematography and the accuracy and the technique and the theatrical lighting is really, you know, really difficult. It's really a feat. We've talked about collaboration a couple of times and obviously working with uh, all the different departments. Is it fair to say, though, in a film like Tragedy Macbeth, which is sparse and specific, that that collaboration is even more important? Or do you think there is a difference? I, I feel like collaboration is the whole thing. If you're, if you're not interested in collaborating, you should be painting or making sculptures or expressing yourself visually some other way. You could be a still photographer out on the street by yourself. But to pick a medium where you, you can easily have 100 people uh, in a giant space making something together you better be okay with that. Like you better be okay with hearing their opinions and having ideas. And yeah, you're, you're right on, on track. It's, I don't think there's like a sort of, I don't think there's like a scale of how collaborative it can be based on any particular project. You know, I think it's all the same level. It's a marriage too. It's like a weird, I always feel like strangely, and I don't mean this in a sexual way, but I always feel strangely attracted to the person I'm, I'm collaborating with. Like there's like a, a heart connection. There's like a, it's almost like you're dating for that period of time, even if they're, you know, whatever your, you know, gender assignment or sexuality doesn't matter. You're kind of attracted to this person, you know? And so it always becomes like this weird sort of vulnerable, heart connected collaboration, no matter what the, the film is. And, I think that's a really smart thing to say. I think that's exactly right. And and there's also this level of, you know, when you're uh, a kid and you find some other kid who likes the same thing you do, and and now you're going to go off and imagine something together, right? Like you might go play in someone's backyard and pretend you're on a spaceship together or something. There's an extension of that joy of being able to create with someone and you need to trust that person in and that person and you need to also be okay with saying something out loud that might be completely different than what they were thinking. Um, and you just hope that they, they don't shut you out because of it, but instead are like, no, 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 that's not what I was thinking, but it was this. And, and you never know. I always find the most interesting part of prepping is the day after you've been talking about the big problem you have when you're brushing your teeth the next morning and your brain goes, or you could do it this way. Right, and then you can come right, in, right. you kind of meet in the van the next morning. You have an idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always like that. And it is joyous at times. And it's stressful. Making films is not, it's not a natural way to work. You know, it's almost like the intensity, the amount of presence you have to have for those, for the amount of hours that you have to be that present and that sort of, um, you know, at least emotive and clear and, you know, it's, it's, it's probably the same level of going to war or being in a war, you know, it, who else is that present for 12 hours a day, you know, you know, and acutely present, you know, and able to, to make decisions. No one, only a general maybe, you know, you know, so I find that it's not a natural way to be. So you tend to do, you tend to, you know, you, brother up or sister up or whatever up with people because it's an intense situation to be together in, you know? Yeah. And you, you really need to have each other's backs. And I feel the cinematographer, everyone thinks their role is very unique because it is, but I, I do find having directed and DP that as a director, there is a moment you can kind of let go as the cinematographer is lighting the set and you can let go and make sure that you're, not missing something or let your mind wander just a little in case some idea that's still rattling around in there hasn't come up yet that you need to hear before you're driving home at night and go, Oh, I should have done this. Right. But as the cinematographer, you're setting up the shots, you're lighting the shots and then you're shooting those shots and you're paying attention. So you're always on hundred percent. Yeah. You're always on. And so I started, <laughs> I started, um, asking to not have lunch meetings years and years ago. And I actually try to eat a really light lunch and go get like a 15 minute nap in the middle of the day. And that changed my whole world. Like it, it really helped a lot. I felt like much, much uh, snappier the second half of the day, just giving yourself 15 minutes because people don't realize how many times you, how many questions you have to answer all every five seconds, you know? Yeah. And how you have to very calmly explain to people why they have to get something done right away or everything's going to fall apart. Exactly. And so, yeah. So it's a heavy <laughs> job. But 
So, so, so to answer your question is it's never the intensity never wa- never wavers. It's always the same collaborative intensity, I think. And like a marriage, you find what what works in that relationship. Uh, I've worked with directors who they wanted to dictate the shots very specifically, but they don't care at all about the lighting in a way. Not don't care, but th- that's the realm you find you expand inside. I worked with it was John Sales on Sunshine State, and I would keep pitching him additional shots, and he kept saying no, no, no. And after about a week. I said, John, do you want me to stop pitching you shots? He's like, no, no, but I'm only going to say yes to like 1%. And that was a generous <laughs> amount. I think there are two shots in that movie that I pitched to him and everything else he'd already planned out. <laughs> well, the fifth film on our list is West Side Story, cinematography by Janusz Kaminski. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful. You know, it's theatrical lighting, another thing. Another, I couldn't tell. I was like, I'm assuming all those exteriors were on a lot, right? Somewhere. All the West Side, all the New York City streets felt like a Hollywood lot. But I think they might have been lit up like that, but I, I I can't tell either. I mean, they're they're big. So my daughter is a dancer. She's been dancing since she was four. She's in high school now, and we love movie musicals. And the thing that both she and I noticed, and it's the craziest thing, and I don't know if a non uh, cinematographer or certainly a non filmmaker would pick up on how precise it is, but some of the match cuts in this movie, the camera couldn't be one inch higher, one inch lower and be any more perfect. Like just the height and lensing of some of the, the moves. And there were a couple of times that it literally made both me and my daughter go like, Oh my gosh, like, like, Holy cow. And it's not something I was expecting to feel or see when I was watching that movie, you, you really sense this, okay, these are also the same filmmakers that made Munich and, and these other movies are, or catch me if you can, which is also full of all these perfectly shot scenes where, where the camera operation, you know, Spielberg is the person behind it, but Janusz has been achieving it for so long for, for him. We kind of think of them as a unit, these shots where if you technically knew what it took to make those shots, your head would pop off, but you don't think about it because they stay attached to the story. So well, you don't, you don't notice like, Oh, the camera just went from inside the car to outside the car and then panned around inside the car in a way that it's impossible. I I don't know how they did it. I think that's what I noticed too. was, was like, wow, this is a, this execution of cameras is really incredible. From my little experience, I know that that's a big team effort. There's a lot of wheels. There's a lot of like wheels turning at the same time. A lot of a very oiled engine, a very greased engine that's operating at its highest level to do that. Yeah, and it's it's so crisp. And what's interesting to me too is the lighting style is a lighting style I don't myself naturally find myself drawn to doing or wanting to do. And it's often easy if if it's something you don't do, you might discount it but instead i sit there and go how do you end up how do you do it that way (laughs) it is so theatrically lit but it's still itself it's still the story that they're making together and so it so it all works i often find myself in a similar position where i feel like i might look at something and be like i'm not that's not really what i do necessarily but i appreciate it i appreciate the level of craft i appreciate the level of I like, and I really like theatrical lighting, honestly. You know, I like to, I like it. I even like to do it when I can and when I have the opportunity to do it. But you can see levels, you know, Janusz Kaminski. It's obviously to see levels when you're a cinematographer, you know, especially someone who's somewhat young in my career, I see levels, you know. I'm like, that's the level. <laughs> and I'm always, I'm always like, wow, it's nice to witness it. And everything doesn't have to, some things need to be theatrical. Like, and that's fine. And we should have diversity in what we're able to, to watch, you know, in terms of cinema and execution. I, I tend to be a little, I tend to maybe go too far with my work in terms of trying to be realistic to realism and emotion. I'm like, damn, I wish I would have been a little more concerned about <laughs> that actor being in that total darkness. You can't even see his face. <laughs> you know, like, I could have given that something, you know, like, so, and then in other times I'm, you know, I, you know, I do a lot of commercials too, so it's a different world. But uh, not to make this about me, but I'm just saying that um, as a as a cinematographer, I really appreciate levels, and I saw the level of 
lighting and execution and cues, lighting cues and theatrical things, theatrical cues and things like that that are fun. That, you know, if you do a West Side Story type thing, you can see the cinematography and it will have a little more fun. And when you guys talk about theatrical lighting, for example, like what are you noticing that you would say, oh, that's a theatrical lighting approach in West Side Story? Well, you see a lighting cue, you know. Once you see something go from dark to light out of the blue, that's like a theatrical lighting <laughs> You know, they did like a gag, you know, it's like the lighting cue that you would see on the stage, you know, that they were able to introduce in some in some way onto the film. The other thing too is the colors. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, that's a street light, but it happens to be Lee 101 yellow. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very it's very poppy and very not not what you see in the natural world. An interesting thing to do if you're if you're a young cinematographer is um, just go on to IMDb and then look at the still frames that the production has put up, right? So you know that they like them. You know that those are frames that someone, in, at least in the publicity department, really likes. And think about, okay, can I figure out where every light is and what kind of light it is? That's an interesting approach. You have to backwards engineer your brain to... You know, when you see something you like, I think it's it's really comforting for me to hear Sean you talk about that reality grabbing you, and kind of later you thinking I could have fudged it because I I too has suffered the same exact thought many many times. <laughs> <laughs> like I know they were in a dark room, but why? I did too much. Yeah, but sometimes <laughs> it's fun. Sometimes it's also fun to like for me personally, and maybe other you probably do the same thing, Patrick, is once a project is done for me, I don't, I'm too much of an obsessive person to see, to even watch it half the time because I'll drive, I won't sleep, you know? So a lot of times I'll just be like, I'm, I, that's it. I did it. Whatever I did, I did it. If they don't like it, they don't like it. <laughs> but on the day I was, I was into it. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely moments in the color correct room where you, I have to stop myself from saying out loud, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> that's that's not the smartest thing in the world to say in front of your bosses. Um, unless you're, I have found with some directors that those conversations actually lead to better collaborations later when you talk about the things that you both screwed up um, or when something didn't work out, but then ended up working on the screen. That's That's always, may your world be full of those, right? Those like, Oops, I'm a genius moments to steal a uh, phrase from Hernan Otano. Yeah, but anyway, I, I, I love the I like I love the work of West Side Story. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to say I didn't know if this was going to be part of your questions. Was I feel like uh, Alice Brooks might have knocked herself out of a nomination by having two great looking musicals <laughs> in the <laughs> same year <laughs> that were very different looking, and a, a year where we had three really high quality musicals to, to look at, but that the, the same person shot tick, tick, boom and in the Heights, pretty incredible. And there were a couple scenes in each of those movies where you're just like, come on. Like they're so perfect. Yeah. The swimming pool scene and in the Heights is just shocking. Yeah, I've never seen it. I gotta watch it. Oh, it's, it's pretty beautiful. And, and um, I got to hear how hard it was to shoot because of the location that they picked and, Tick, Tick, Boom also has the pool scene, right? They, I'm sorry. The, that's what it is. Tick, Tick, Boom is the oh, pool tick, tick, scene. Oh, Tick, Tick, Boom is the pool yeah. scene. Yeah. Both okay. those movies have 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 pool scenes, but I think uh, mm-hmm. the Tick, Tick, Boom is the one that, uh, that really sets itself apart. Yeah, that's the one I was talking about. And there's a diner scene. I don't know how best to explain it without giving anything away. There's a diner scene in Tick, Tick, Boom that is also really wonderful. <laughs> no, check it out. And then there's, um, there's a scene in, in the Heights that I'm a huge fan of too, which is it's all in one room and it's a, it's a pretty, there's a really long continuous take in it and just going for where to place the exposure and what to do with what little room for lighting she had. And it's just wonderful. And, and it's emotional. It feels, it's feels connected to. Yeah. For me, that's always the main thing. If it's, if it feels like it's supposed to feel, then the technique is not as important to me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Just it it feels like really connected to the characters and the stories. So if there was going to be a category in the podcast of people that you wish had been nominated, then I, I would nominate Alice Brooks for knocking herself out by having two amazing musicals. 
I'm going to go back and look at it. That sounds inspirational. Yeah. Patrick, you anticipated exactly my next question. If there were other projects in 2021 that didn't make this list, but deserved a shout out. So Alice Brooks work, it's interesting with two projects. Yeah. And I just felt that they were both very, very, they're, they're two musicals, but they're very different looking. I mean, Tick, Tick, Boom feels super gritty and really it, it shot me back to living in a, you know, in a, a tiny railroad and uh, in the nineties when they were affordable um, and then in the Heights is completely different feeling. It's a much glossier along the lines of West side story style, um, much poppier looking colors and um, just a very different musical. And, and that she shot both of those and we got to see them in the same year. It's really fun. And then, you know, West side story comes out at the same time. Uh, Sean, was there anything? In, I was in, thinking, I was like, trying to rack my brain. I can't, the way my schedule has been lately, I haven't got a chance to see everything, you know. Working's a good problem. <laughs> I got to go back and look at a bunch of stuff. Um, I thought Belfast was pretty beautiful, too, and was surprised it didn't get nominated. But I knew it would be in the, the mix. And I'm sure if this list was six, it'd be on it because that's another the people's faces in that movie just look phenomenal and really wonderful and and it has a really great sense of um, moving the way a kid, you know, where the point of view of the story is, is often based on a child. And that's a whole different, you start thinking about framing in a different way. And the way sunlight kind of got into the houses in that movie, I thought was really beautiful and not, not always easy to pull off. And I don't know how much of that was sets versus locations, but you, some of those are definitely locations based on coming off of the streets. and But I think they built a bunch of it so they could have control of these little alley s- streets, but I don't know what the transitions were from exteriors to interiors. But you can't tell. If there are transitions, they're seamless. They, they work really well. I'm going to watch Belfast later. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Well, gentlemen, appreciate you both joining us today. Really enjoyed hearing you guys talk about these films. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, thank you. Listeners, that's a wrap for the episode. There's also a wrap for season 11 of the podcast. If you've been a regular listener for the last five weeks, we've given you a boatload of behind-the-scenes trivia to share at your Oscar viewing party this weekend. If you've only just joined us recently and don't have time to catch up, no worries. Our insights are evergreen, so catch up on the series whenever it's convenient. You can learn more about the podcast on our website, belowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. It's easy to produce past episodes, and you'll find links to all of our social media. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of you for sticking with us. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. The specifics for Season 12 are still in flux, but I'm planning to experiment with shorter episodes for a while, and we should be ready to launch in a couple of weeks. Come back and let me know what you think. I really appreciate your feedback. By the way, the lighting in your whole frame is pretty nice there, Patrick. I was looking at Oh. It has a nice little soft key light and like a little thing dashing up the back. It's kind of cute. I have been called out in some meetings for curating this background because it it very, uh... if, if I were to pan this camera anywhere else in this room, it would just be a disaster of like <laughs> weird stuff. Yeah, it looks good. It looks good. <laughs> look, look, just like stuff laying around. <laughs> <laughs>